BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. We're discussing the Calgary Stampeders taking it to the BC Lions in a surprise upset win. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders free agent list. Nagy and quarterback Nathan Rourke being moved back to the Jacksonville Jaguars practice roster. U Sports football rankings finally getting it right. And we make our picks for week 21 in the CFL. But first. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders wasted no time setting their course for 2024, announcing a three-year contract extension for general manager Jeremy O'Day, while also letting Craig Dickinson know he will not return as the team's head coach. Were either of these decisions a surprise? No on Dickinson. I think it's pretty obvious when you lose your last seven games in a row in two consecutive regular seasons, missing the playoffs, that you're not going to be back. Um, the only way that Craig Dickinson stays, I think, is if the Saskatchewan Rough Riders successfully petition to move the Grey Cup to Labor Day, since that's when their season <laughs> has, they've stopped trying at least the last couple of seasons. But the surprise is Jeremy O'Day being back and reportedly on a, on a three-year deal as Craig Reynolds, the club's CEO and president, revealed during the press conference. I mean, O'Day has seen this team consistently perform worse and worse since he took over the job following Chris Jones' departure to the NFL following the 2018 season. I don't think Jeremy O'Day is a bad general manager by any stretch of the imagination. Craig Reynolds highlighted some of O'Day's successes during the press conference, and yeah, they've made some good draft picks. Yeah, they have had some legitimate, uh, I don't want to use the word excuses necessarily, but they, they lost their starting quarterback for almost all of 2023, right? Those are things that are going to negatively affect your record that are somewhat beyond your control. And Jake Dolegala, it should be said, played relatively well, at least for a young backup in 2023 when tasked as being the starter. But this is not a circumstance where you'd have to fire O'Day and eat one or two years of, of a big salary. He was on a he was on an expiring deal, right? That that was what made the change so easy. And talking to people around the league, some of whom would have likely been candidates for that job in Saskatchewan had the GM position came open, a lot of people are surprised to see not only O'Day back, but back on such a long term contract. That's the shocking thing to me, Hodge, is that three year deal. And it remains to be seen what the structure of that is. Maybe it is a one-year deal with team options. And I know that people will say 
in response to this that, well, if they wanted to get a top head coaching candidate, they needed to have a GM in house that had some tenure, that had some insurance because nobody's going to come and work under a lame duck. But it was so easy at this stage to move on from Jeremy O'Day because of that expiring contract. There's no ramifications whatsoever. You say, see you later, and you get another top candidate in-house. Now, you're in a situation potentially where if this team continues to struggle and you do have to move on from Jeremy O'Day, that you're going to be on the hook for that salary under the CFL's football operations caps for not one, but potentially two more years after next season. To me, that is a horrific decision by Ryder's management. They needed to either move on entirely or at the absolute worst, give it a two-year deal. A three-year deal is unconscionable to me. There's so many directions to go here, fellas, so we'll try to keep it concise. First of all, Brendan Tamman, as Joel Gasson pointed out on 3downnation.com, won a Grey Cup, and he got whacked. He got nowhere near the amount of runway that O'Day has gotten, so it's very clear that O'Day and Craig Reynolds are tied together. However this goes, good, bad, or ugly, these two guys are in it together. The most interesting part to me, guys, is not necessarily to do with the Rough Riders. It has to do with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who have Kyle Walters, their general manager, on an expiring contract of his own. And there were people behind the scenes that thought this would be easy. The Rough Riders would move on from O'Day, bring in the Prairie rival general manager in Walters, and make a big splash and go from there. That has not obviously happened and won't be the case. I think things are getting very weird in Winnipeg. Back to Saskatchewan, though. I do think O'Day has made some very solid draft picks, some good free agent signings. Sean Payne Jr. would be one of those. But he's got to get this right this time. He gets his, quote, pick of the litter in terms of who he's going to bring in as a head coach. I would imagine he's going to want a guy that is somewhat controllable and not arrogant. I've heard a lot of buzz about Scott Milanovic behind the scenes. The one kind of dark horse name I'll throw out there, guys. I know we were talking about this in our chat group the other day. And I think it's possible, even though it seems kind of wild to me, that perhaps Ken Austin is in the mix. O'Day has a lot of respect for Kent Austin. He was the head coach of that team in 2007 that won a Grey Cup. And Jeremy O'Day played on that team, got a ring with the Rough Riders. So I think there's some legitimacy to that. There's some people out here talking about Henry Burris. And although we know he's great in front of the camera and from a CEO head coach kind of perspective, he's been talking about that on Twitter a little bit. He would probably (laughs) do pretty well. I think he needs some more seasoning as a coach before he jumps into a role like that. So those are just a couple of names. There's going to be some other obvious ones out there. Both guys in Toronto Costanza on the offensive side of the ball and Corey Mace on the defensive side of the ball. I've talked to some people that felt like Mace interviewed very well last year and who also believe that he would get along with Jeremy O'Day. And this is what it ultimately comes down to in terms of hiring the next head coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. It's going to be a guy that O'Day really likes, respects, or gets along with very well, jives quickly with in the interview process. 
I've got my list of six candidates up on three down. A quick Google search will bring that up or just go directly to the site. You'll see it. But here's the thing. There's a lot of hand-wringing going on in Ryderville right now. That stadium was maybe half full. I know the official number, like tickets sold, was like 24,000 or whatever. But it was a gorgeous day when they hosted the Toronto Argonauts. It was beautiful weather on the prairies. It's not the cold, frigid, late-season, regular-season game that we always tend to see in Regina, in Winnipeg, whatever. It was gorgeous weather. And the Riders would have had a decent shot of making the playoffs if they won that game, right? If they win, that means Calgary has to beat Winnipeg this week to make the playoffs. Now, the Bombers are likely going to be sending a bit of a skeleton crew to Cowtown this week, but Winnipeg's twos are still pretty good. So my point is the Riders had a, a chance, a very reasonable chance. One could even argue a good chance of making the playoffs with the win. And half the people who are normally in that building stayed home. I talked to people who were there. They estimated somewhere between fourteen and 15,000 were in the stands, judging by the eyeball test in person. That's basically 50% capacity for that building. And I believe the people who stayed home, they didn't stay home to avoid the cold. They didn't stay home to, to you know, uh, uh, because the team wasn't going to the playoffs. Because, again, they were postseason eligible at that time. They stayed home as a protest against what this organization has been the last few years and wanting change. Based on the outpouring on social media that I've seen, fans have not gotten as much change as they wanted. They wanted to see O'Day gone and possibly even Reynolds gone. And I'll say this, if the Riders come out and start next season 4-0, all of these people are going to be back in the stadium and happy campers. <laughs> but my point is, if you're Jeremy O'Day or Craig Reynolds, you know that you have to get not not a double, not a triple. You have to hit a home run with whoever you hire as your next head coach. Because if you get off to a slow start next season, that's the one thing the Riders have done both of these last years is they've gotten off to strong starts. If you don't start strong in 2024, you are going to have not just a bunch of upset fans, but you're going to have a bunch of empty seats. Not in week, not in week 20, at the end of the year, you're going to have empty seats in the middle of summer when that team makes a bunch of its money. Only thing I'll disagree with you on, Hodge, is I don't think 4-0 to start next season matters in the least because fans have been through this before. As you mentioned, the last two seasons, fantastic starts for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. 4-1, and I believe 4-2 this season. Hot starts, they looked like contenders, and then it all fell apart. This team needs to finish, and this team needs to win playoff games for fans to get back on board. I don't know if just changing Craig Dickinson will be enough. The Calgary Stampeders embarrass the BC Lions this past weekend, beating the Leos 41-17 in the Dome in Vancouver. Calgary entered the contest as a four-win team that had beaten only Ottawa, Edmonton, Saskatchewan, and the Chad Kelly-less Toronto Argonauts this year. Yet they made the run-happy, they looked like the run-happy Stampeders of 2022. With these teams set to play again in the West semifinal on November 4th in the same building, no less, did this result give you any pause about BC's chances? It absolutely did. I think the Stampeders on both sides of the ball found a formula that worked against the BC Lions. And look, 
them running all over the Lions does not shock me. This is not a team that is built for a physical downhill pounding on defense. They have holes in their run defense that can be exploited by a team that is willing to commit to them. And this was the case last year. We talked going into the West semifinal about how Calgary could run all over the Lions if they wanted to. And then they chose not to run the football almost at all in that game. And the result was a loss. Clearly, I think the Stampeders have learned from that mistake and don't want to repeat it going forward. But the bigger thing to me was what they did to the BC Lions offense because Brett Monson came out with a strong game plan, a game plan that's been used on a couple of occasions by other CFL coaches this season to expose Vernon Adams Jr. and slow down that passing attack, which is primarily three-man fronts, dropping nine, stick him in the pocket, let that poor lines protection manifest, and have him panic as he goes through his reads. And he did not respond well, especially at the start of this game. And the only way that the BC Lions can defend the run is if they get out in front with their high-powered offense and put up points so the other team can't run anymore they weren't able to do that in this football game and the stampeders now have a formula to replicate going forward the stamps i think should be the betting favorites going into that game at bc place as weird as it sounds bc is not the same team that they would have start the season that's right i said they should be the betting favorites because of the way they went in and physically dominated the lions and i had one person tell me that they believe Vernon Adams Jr. is still head case. And I think there is an actual case to be made for that. The one thing that he needs to be able to do, as JC alluded to, when he sees these three-man fronts and there's all these guys in coverage, is get the ball out in rhythm. He needs to play within the structure of Jordan Maximic's offense. And that's why Nathan Rourke was so successful last year. They're a little bit different in terms of their styles. And I think Rourke overall is a more accurate passer. But Vernon Adams Jr. has to be able to win from the pocket in rhythm on time to at least have a chance to win that game. I really like the way Calgary is trending. I think a lot of people, and us included, have been down on Jake Mayer through the season, but he's consistently put up some strong passing numbers. He's among the league leaders. They just haven't been able to finish. And I think in that game, Come they on, Doug. Come they on. He, he, had a, he, he had 123 yards in that game and was under 50%. That's not exactly Jake Mayer's, you know, greatest One performance. Throughout the season. So I think that he can make plays, but if they do commit to the run, I'm not saying in that game, sorry, season. If, if they give it to Jake Mayer, they have no chance in hell. They have to win with the that. run. I said if they run the football, Jake Mayer is capable of making some plays. For the most part of the season, Mayor has made plays. He's up there among the league leaders in passing yards, is he not? He is. He He's is. up there in the league leaders in so passing yards. He's also the leader in interceptions. Exactly. So he's made a lot of mistakes, but we've seen him get really hot, especially against the Toronto Argonauts at BMO Field. I was there in person. So I'm not saying that game. So don't get it twisted. Jake Mayer did not play well in that game, but I'm saying throughout the course of the season, we've seen flashes. He needs to be more consistent, protect the football. But if Calgary goes in there, runs the rock with Kadeem Carey, Peyton Logan, that offensive line is playing physical, then that's why I think the Stamps should be favorites in that game. I, I disagree on the Jake Mayer thing. Jake Mayer is the only quarterback in the CFL who has started 17 games this year. That is why he is at or near the top 
of any passing category. But with that being said, I will commend the Calgary Stampeders on what I would call, well, I, I want to use the word obvious offensive approach, but apparently this obvious offensive approach eluded them for almost an entire season. This is a team with two offensive tackles who have struggled terribly in pass protection. An interior of the offensive line that is dominant in the run game and can control the trenches. You've got great running backs, and yes, I know Kadeem Carey missed some time. I know that's, that Peyton Logan missed some time, but even Diedrich Mills has been very good, right? And you've got a group of receivers that have not been able to catch anything with any level of consistency. And you look at that formula, and to me, I'm like, great, we'll run the ball 30 times a game because our quarterback is inconsistent and our receivers let him down when he does make good plays. And really, all we need is like one deep shot to Reggie Bagleton, stretch the field a little bit, and we can win because we know our defense is going to generate some turnovers. And for some reason, that formula, which, by the way, they used for most of 2022 to win 12 games, they abandoned this year pretending that Jake Mayer is someone he's not, putting their offensive tackles in a bad position and trying to find receivers and just being unable to uncover any new talented blood, desperately missing some of their injured players. Jalen Philpott's been out all year. But my point is the Calgary Stampeders, better late than never. You figure out a game plan that actually matches your personnel, and now you've got healthy, rested star running backs for the postseason. Now, I do think that the BC Lions are going to have an opportunity to work on this formula. Let's not forget the Stampeders have to play this week. They host Winnipeg. BC gets to sit at home, watch the tape, and marinate in that stink and that loss, which I'm sure they hate. So I do expect the Lions to come out swinging in the West Semi. But kudos to the Stampeders after going four wins for so long this season. You adjusted and it worked which has finally added some intrigue to this West Semi, which I think until last week, everybody just assumed, whether it was Calgary, Saskatchewan, whoever, was going to be a bloodbath out West before the Lions inevitably came to Winnipeg for the West Final. The the reason why the Lions should still enter this playoff game favorites is exactly what you laid out there, Hodge. They have two weeks to prepare for this, and Calgary has showed their cards. That's the formula of beating the Lions. The Lions now know what it looks like. Can they adjust? Hopefully, with someone as innovative on offense as Jordan McSimmick calling the plays, they will make the necessary adjustments and make that Calgary run game a non-factor by what they can do on the offensive side of the ball. Well, defensively, just, just fill the box. Fill the box and make Jake Mayer beat you. I don't think he can. If he can, God bless him. Prove me wrong. That'd be great if Jake Mayer started playing great football. I don't think he could do it. Fill the box. But again, we'll have to wait and see what BC does. Three Down Nation has exclusively reported the Saskatchewan Rough Riders free agent list, which features 37 names. If you had to pick just one, which players should the Riders try hardest to get back for 2024? There's only a couple guys to me that the Riders need to focus on in terms of that list. I think they should flip over a lot of this roster because it was really a bunch of individuals trying to call themselves a team. That's part of the reason why I don't think they were successful in 2023. So my boy Hodge is going to take the offensive guy that I really liked. So I'll go defense here. And even though he's getting up there in age, Larry 
Dean has been an absolute stud for this team. He can play multiple spots in the linebacking core, has piled up the tackles really his whole career in the CFL, but especially the last number of seasons that he's been in Saskatchewan. He's a quiet leader. He's a leader by example, but he's a guy that I think the Riders could bring back for at least one year on a value deal. I know Jeremy O'Day loves him, so I would expect him to return and help anchor that defense next season. I'm going to take Sean Bain, who, by the way, speaking of Calgary Stampeders receivers struggling, I think they wish they had held on to him after the 2022 season. Like this guy was let walk and he was the best receiver for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, in my opinion, this year. And he certainly would have been the best receiver on the Calgary Stampeders this year. I love his combination of being able to do some of the dirty work and finding holes in the zones, but also being a deep threat. Like this is a guy who really helped stretch the field. And you could only imagine how dangerous he could be next year, possibly with a better offensive system. Not that I think Kelly Jeffrey's system was bad, but with a better offensive system and also with potentially one starting quarterback. Obviously the Riders had, you know, Trevor Harris for whatever it was, six, eight weeks, not even. And then they they seemingly bounced around randomly between Mason Fine, Jake Dola Gala for and then finally kind of settled by the end. But I think the sky is the limit for Sean Bain. I'm excited for what he could potentially do to me. He is worth big money to bring back in Ryderville. Sean Bain is the obvious choice on offense. I thought he was fantastic this year, but there's an obvious choice on defense as well. And it's not the ancient Larry Dean at linebacker. It's like a position that actually brings some serious value. And that's the defensive line. Anthony Lanier is a pending free agent. And I know people will look at his numbers this year and say, well, he only had five sacks. How impactful can he be? Anthony Lanier in terms of a down in down out ability to generate pressure. If you look at the numbers and you look at the tape, he is up there with Matthew Betts and Jake Ceresna as in terms of one of the most effective pass rushers in the league right now. And he can do it at defensive end or he can do it at defensive tackle. This is a guy who can be an absolute game wrecker. And while he hasn't necessarily finished the reps this year he's generated pressure so that other people can this is an absolute must sign for the raggers in my opinion do not let this guy out of your sight each cfl team unveiled its award nominees on wednesday the biggest news came out of winnipeg where canadian running back brady Oliveira, not franchise quarterback zach Hilaris, received the nomination for most outstanding player do you believe the voters in the peg got it right? And were there any other surprises across the league? Well, for full transparency, I do not get a vote at the local level. There's five reporters plus the team's head coach that get to vote in each respective CFL city. In Winnipeg, we have enough traditional legacy media people to fill those five spots. I will get a vote at the national and divisional levels for these awards, but I did not at the local level. I went on the record this past week in my postgame column saying that I would have voted for Zach Kolaris. Yes, it is true that he threw four fewer touchdowns this season than last year. It is also true that he threw two more picks this season than he did last year, but he did throw for more yardage and he did have more rushing touchdowns. So to me, Zach Kolaris and his 
ability to extend plays, his ability to find receivers downfield, even outside of structure when things start to break down. That is a big part of what opens things up for Brady Oliveira to be so dominant. With that being said, I certainly think Brady Oliveira is still very deserving of this recognition. He is currently at 1,980 yards from scrimmage. If he does play this week, I think it'll just be to get 20 more yards, be it on the ground or through the air or a combination of the two so that he can hit. 2000 for the year he's got 13 touchdowns he has the second best rushing season ever by a canadian player the only season in front of him was 2013 john cornish who of course not only won mop that year he won he won the the entire canadian athletics award the lou marsh a tremendously prestigious award for and i think four football players have won i think laurent duvernay tardif was was the most recent but The point is, I was a little bit surprised, but I certainly don't think it's a wrong decision. I also will say, I do think Zach Kolaris was the victim of a little bit of voter fatigue. He's won MOP the last two years. I think it's tough when you've done that to continue to get the votes unless you do something truly outstanding or beyond what you've done the previous two years. And I will also say, this shows a massive flaw in the antiquated system by which we design awards. I'm not going to ramble about this because we've talked about this on the show previously, but two players from the same team, if they are the two most deserving individuals league wide should be able to be finalists, even if they're in the same division or on the same team. So good for Brady Oliveira. Again, I would not have cast my ballot for him, But I also would like to be in a system where even a year from now or somewhere in the near future, he and Zach Kolaris could have both been finalists for this award at the division or league levels because they deserve it. To me, they're the two top candidates, certainly in the West and arguably in the entire league. Who goes to the people in Winnipeg who actually did vote? on this award because they got it right here, Hodge. They made the correct decision in giving Brady Oliveira this award. I just just like that we live in a world where running backs simultaneously don't matter at all, but also they're the best player in the entire league. I have... I have the the perfect rebuttal to that and that this is the most outstanding player. It's not the most valuable player, right? If it was most valuable player, a running back feasibly cannot cannot win it. They are not valuable enough in any capacity. But if you want to make it most outstanding, then Brady's accomplishments in terms of what he's been able to do at his position are far more outstanding this season than Kolaris. And I appreciate that some of the numbers are better than last year and that some of the numbers are worse. I hate that argument. I hate when people talk about, well, he won MOP last year and look at his numbers compared to that because it removes any context. You're not basing it off what happened last year. You're basing it off what other people in the league have accomplished this year and what other people on his team have accomplished. And what Brady Oliveira has done this season is special. Even for somebody who fundamentally dislikes the running back position and thinks it has limited value, what he's been able to accomplish personally on an individual level is remarkably impressive. So the voters in Winnipeg got this right because Zach Caleros, while he's very good, was just as expected, and Brady Oliveira went above and beyond. As expected just happens to be the two-time reigning most outstanding player 
in the league. He led the CFL in quarterback rating and touchdown passes and guided the Winnipeg Blue Bombers to yet another West Division regular season title. The argument for me comes down to this. If you take Zach Kolaris away from this team, what would Brady Oliveira's numbers look like and vice versa? I think you yeah. could stick, JC, to your argument in the past about running backs. Another average running back, let's kind of use the baseball terminology, war, wins above replacement. So an average running back in there, they might not have Olivera's numbers this year, but I think they would come close to it. Vice like, versa, I, I agree with you. I agree with you, but that's a value there. argument. That's a value argument. That's not an outstanding argument. That's a value argument. And I agree with you. Fundamentally. In this to me, it's one and the same. So I just think it's very hard, and I respect your opinion, JC, but I think it's very hard to differentiate these two. I totally agree with Hodge. These should be the two finalists. What this has done now has changed the entire most outstanding player voting at the division and essentially the league level, right? It's going to be Brady Oliveira versus Chad Kelly. Now I think there's more of an argument for Kelly to win that award. Yep. And it is very difficult to differentiate. I think Brody Oliveira has been outstanding for this team. But what, if what was that word you used? They're outstanding. And Claris has two. I think voter fatigue gets set in like it did with Stanley Bryant last year yeah. when he was voted most outstanding lineman again for like the umpteenth time. And he wasn't the best, most outstanding lineman in the league. So just because Zach Claris has won it two years in a row – means nothing. Evaluate this year on its own. I respect all those guys in Winnipeg who voted. This just happens to be my personal opinion. And I do think that JC has a point here that MOP versus MVP is much different. But I think Calaris this year had an outstanding season to once again lead this team to West Division title in the regular season. Oliveira is really good, and I think it's really close but I give it to Calaris as good as those two were. And by the way, for those wondering, because I agree, the conversation between Oliver and Kelly is very different between Calaris and Kelly. Calaris has 33 touchdowns. Kelly has 23. Calaris has 15 picks. Kelly has 12. So the interceptions, yeah, Zach has more, but they're pretty close. Zach also has more pass attempts. But but Kolaris has 10 more touchdowns. Now, rushing-wise, yes, Kelly is the more effective runner. He's got 248 yards, eight touchdowns. Kolaris has 77 with two. But even then, when you take the touchdowns into account, Kolaris has 35 total. Kelly has 31. And as much as Kelly's numbers would have been better had he not taken some time to rest after the Argos clinched the East final, or at least clinched the East division about 40 years ago, it feels like. <laughs> Uh, I you, you can't argue that, right? He, his his performance is his performance. So I I think it should have been Kolaris, and that is that is that is my thing. And by the way, JC, I'm totally cool with your argument. But from mm -hmm. here on forward, I never ever want to hear that running backs don't matter. <laughs> you can say you can say yeah. that. In my opinion, running back is not as important as other positions. That's perfectly valid. But never ever ever again tell me they don't matter. That's garbage. Value is different than performance. Value <laughs> and that's is different fine. Than performance. But don't tell say me they don't me. matter. Don't tell me they don't matter. Don't yeah. matter in terms of value. In terms of value, it's a value statement. 
what you just said has no value. It's a garbage <laughs> statement. We have, oh, a new award here, most garbage take. Oh, look, they've already got JC's name engraved on it. Garbage. Uh, I, will, I will happily die on this hill. I will take that award with pleasure. Wait, you're going to die on this hill? It. Well, hills are different than mountains, so therefore I can have I one opinion there. about hills. Hey, <laughs> I live in Manitoba. Anything above 10 feet is a mountain. Okay, that's that's our rule. That's how we do business. Wow, here. I'll just Bro, I'll just sit here and look at the mountains on my window. JC, I think he's really nitpicking your words, which is acceptable on the show. You can't say that running backs don't matter, right? They okay. do matter. There is a talent difference between Brady Oliveira Thank and your average CFL running back. You at absolutely. least have to see that. R- running backs don't matter is like a catchy catchphrase used in the analytics community it's not strictly well, speaking true they do they do i haven't i haven't used the phrase running backs don't matter i have used you have the used lingo that phrase and the exclamation <laughs> i've explained to you in great detail why the value equation does not work for running backs and why they bring less to the table than other positions Okay. Do they matter? Of course, everyone okay. matters. Thank the, you. Thank the, you. The, the assistant ball boy matters at least a little bit, right? Like everything well, has an impact. Probably not. But in, running in, backs in, more so. Yes, the running back matters more than the assistant ball Bro, boy. I'll tell we, you, we agree the on Canadian that. University quarterback never playing in the pro level. It mattered when my boy Nick Fitzgibbon was in the backfield. Versus anyone else on a roster. With all due respect, I'm still tight with some of those guys. It mattered for a number of reasons that I'm not going to go into. Running backs out there, just don't even listen to JC, okay? Y'all matter. Hold on. Dunk, you played quarterback at the U Sports level? (laughs) I had no idea. Why don't you ever talk about it on the show? I only talk about you sports quarterbacks that are lighting it up like Trey Ford and the Canadians like Nathan Rourke. Ah, I see. All right, you guys got picks to do. I'm out of here. All right. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers travel to Calgary to take on the Stampeders on a Friday night in a game that means nothing for either team. Though the depth charts for this one still haven't come out, it seems reasonable to expect the clubs will rest a number of starters. Who's going to take it? Yeah. If it was just one side that was resting starters, I think you go with the Stampeders in this one, but it doesn't matter for either team. So I expect both sides will do some resting, will get some reps to their second-tier guys. And when it's equal footing, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are a better team with better backups. So I'm taking the Bombers in this game. Yeah, I'm going to do the same. There's no betting line for this game. I don't think there will be any betting lines for this entire weekend because, of course, maybe last minute we'll get some, but I don't expect Vegas to be putting out lines for games when they have no idea who's going to be playing. But for the reasons you mentioned, JC, I will also take the Bombers in this one because I think Winnipeg's twos are better than a lot of Calgary's ones. With all due respect to the Stampeders, they they are still, at the end of the day, a six-win football team. The Hamilton Tiger Cats visit the Montreal Alouettes on Saturday afternoon in a preview of this year's East semifinal. The Owls are 2-0 against Steel Town so far this season, though Hamilton has shown improvement as of late, winning six of their last nine games. 
Can Montreal sweep the season series and set the proper tone heading into the playoffs? If there was a game to just turn the TV off this week and not tune into it, <laughs> it's probably this one because these two teams play again next week. They are not going to be showing anything whatsoever unique on the offensive or defensive side. It's going to be absolute bread and butter plays, nothing unique, nothing special. Keep it all close to the vest. And in that circumstance, I actually think the Hamilton Tiger Cats can sneak out an upset win here because if James Butler is playing in the backfield, I like him better than William Stanback this year. And I think there's going to be a lot of running in this football game. I wouldn't expect James Butler to be out there. I would expect the Cats to give a lot of work to some of their other guys. I remember I really enjoyed during the preseason watching Fleet Davis, their backup PR running back, make plays. I would love to see him get an opportunity this week to, to carry the rock 25 times because I 100% agree with what you said. I think this game is going to be a dog of dogs. And... At the end of the day, it's unfortunate that things have worked out this way because no one is excited for a meaningless regular season game at the best of times. But when you're getting the same teams in the same building the next week for all the marbles, it really takes any juice that you might otherwise get out of this game. If anything, I'm just excited to see what the Cats are able to do with their quarterback situation. I assume Caleb Evans will get the start for Montreal, but again, that is speculation, not official. In Hamilton, they've got three quarterbacks who have been bouncing in and around in the lineup all over the place. I'm I'm interested to see who gets a look there. But is, is it do you, do you put Bo Levi Mitchell out there for even a little bit? Does Matthew Schiltz get most of the work, or do you go back to Taylor Powell, who helped this team tread water for an extended period of time this year, and I believe still has the most wins of any quarterback, at least as a starter in Steeltown this year. I will take the Tie Cats if for no other reason then I believe the Alouettes are going to win the playoff game, but we shall see. Toronto Argonauts visit the Ottawa Red Blacks on Saturday night in the final game of the CFL's 2023 regular season. The Argos have nothing to play for since ever, or have had nothing to play for since mid-September, while the Red Blacks are looking to enter the offseason on a positive note after missing the postseason for a fourth straight year. Who's going to take it, Hodge? I'm going to take the the Argos just because it's the Argos versus the Red Blacks. And I think Toronto's twos are the best in the league. And that's honestly been something I've really enjoyed watching over the last month and a bit is you've seen guys like Mason Pierce, guys like Quantez Stiggers, guys who, you know, typically are not in the starting lineup, started the season as PR guys all of a sudden getting into the lineup and really flourishing. I've also been very impressed with Tommy Neal. Canadian slotback, formerly of McMaster University, who has been in the starting lineup for the last while and has made some really impressive catches. I really like what these depth players have done in Toronto. Um, I should also, of course, mention Cameron Dukes. I mean, Cameron Dukes has looked really good since his first outing. His first outing was a disaster at McMahon Stadium. Since then, whether it's in Winnipeg, Regina, whatever, he's looked sharp. So I will take the Argos to win this one. It's time for the Red Blacks to go home and figure out what they want to be this offseason. I completely agree with you, Hodge. And I think if you took a team of the Argos backups and you had them play the entire regular season as a fifth team in the East Division, they would still finish ahead of the Ooh. Ottawa Red Blacks in the standings. So 
This is going to be an interesting game to watch because I think we're going to see both Cameron Dukes and a little bit of Brian Scott for the Argos, who I thought was going to be the backup ahead of Dukes to start the year, but has been in the third string role this year. And there is something to play for. And that is the fact that with a victory, the Argonauts can be 16-2 and and tie the all-time CFL record for the winningest season by a club ever tying the uh, 1989, I believe, Edmonton football team, which would be a remarkable accomplishment considering how many of those wins have had, have come with nothing to play for at the end of the season. Yeah, they're four and one right now in meaningless games. Pretty remarkable run for the Argos this year. It's time for Hodges heritage moment on this day in 2019. Willie Jefferson recorded his 16th pass knockdown of the year in a 29-28 victory over the Calgary Stampeders. It marked a new single-season record and was one of the factors in the pass rusher being named the CFL's most outstanding defensive player that season. Jefferson was a force in Winnipeg's Grey Cup Championship one month later, recording three sacks and two forced fumbles in a 33-12 victory over the Hamilton Tiger Cats. In 2023, Jefferson has again recorded the most pass knockdowns of any player in the league with 13 along with 11 sacks. Is Jefferson still playing the best football of his career? I don't think it's the best football of his career, but it's not far off. He's still a very effective presence out there, and some of the things he can do, just no other player in the league can do. He makes an impact on a game, even when he can't generate pressure because of how long-armed he is and how many knockdowns he gets. I go back to the game that Winnipeg just played against BC and the impact that Jefferson had just being in the way of Vernon Adams Jr. and causing him to panic a little bit sometimes because he knew he couldn't make the throw with Jefferson aligned in front of him because it would get tipped and knocked down or intercepted. This is a guy who makes a difference in every single game he plays in. Yeah, and I'll say this. I mean, I still think Matthew Betts is probably this year's MODP. But when you take into account sacks, plus forced fumbles, plus knockdowns, Willie Jefferson has been the more effective player. Matthew Betts also, I think, kind of fell asleep about halfway through the year. Recently woke up from his hibernation. I think Willie Jefferson's been a little bit more consistent. He did go eight games without a sack, which is very uncharacteristic, but he also made a ton of pass knockdowns over that time. He's a pass knockdown at the end of the day is essentially just as valuable as a sack. You don't get the lost yardage, of course, but you do stop the clock with it, unlike a sack, which could be very helpful if you are trailing. Maybe not as value valuable if you've got the lead, but Jefferson, I agree, not as dominant as he's been in the past, but he's pretty darn close, especially for a guy who is approaching the twilight of his career. He's 32, will turn 33 shortly in early January of 2024. It's now time for the three-minute drill. The Western Mustangs beat the Wilfrid Laurier Golden Hawks 33-30 this past weekend, despite coughing up a 27-0 halftime lead to trail in the fourth quarter. This marks the fifth time in the last six seasons that the Mustangs have gone a perfect 8-0 in the regular season, should they be the favorite to win it all in the Vanier Cup. And I'll tell you why. It's because of that football game they just played. They lost Keon Edwards in the first quarter. They're all-star fifth-year running back to a broken foot. He's not going to be playing down the stretch. 
And then Evan Hillick, their star quarterback, went down with what appeared to be a knee injury late in the fourth quarter and was unable to finish that game. If he's gone as well for any length of time, this becomes a much different Western Mustangs team and they can no longer claim favorite status. Star receiver Dalton Schoen missed this past weekend's game for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and was sporting a walking boot on the sideline. Do you think he's done for the year, Hodge? I think there's a chance he could be, but I am not willing to write Dalton Schoen off. I think Dalton Schoen is a warrior. I know he's a pending free agent, but I also don't think he has plans to leave Winnipeg. And so I think that... When it comes to the postseason, he's going to be willing to play through an injury. And it's worth noting that this is the same club that in 2019 put out Chris Streveler with a broken ankle. Like, like put him out there on the field. And I think there was a broken bone in his foot, too. They shot him up. He played like two weeks after breaking it. And he was the best player in that game. He almost single-handedly won it for Winnipeg at a frigid McMahon Stadium. I wouldn't be shocked if Schoen plays hurt on Remembrance Day when the Bombers host the West Final against either Calgary or BC. The Ottawa 67s wore Red Blacks themed jerseys last week to support their CFL counterparts. Do you think they look good? I love the look of those jerseys and and the 67s have done this for the last couple of years with different Red Blacks themed jerseys. These ones are unique because there seems to be some hints in them to some throwback to the Rough Riders type style that might be included in Ottawa's jerseys next season. It's a nice sneak peek for fans. Deontes Alexander recorded Edmonton's first kick return touchdown since 2015 this past week in the regular season finale against Winnipeg. Do you think the club feels good about getting that particular monkey off their back? Yes, and if anything, this that was the name of the season for Edmonton. It was just getting monkeys off their back. They had the atrocious home losing streak. They had a long, just general losing streak dating back to 2022. They got rid of those, and now they've got rid of this embarrassing streak of no kick return touchdowns for eight calendar years. The Elks have seemingly turned the page. Now it's up to them to write something new in 2024. Speaking of those Elks, they released pending free agent defensive lineman Coney Ely. Was that a surprise? No, it wasn't. I didn't think he was particularly effective when he was on the field and he'd been suspended for the last little bit. I think a guy at that age who comes up here after some success in the NFL but maybe isn't fully committed, it's best to move on from at this stage. Chris Jones said that Trey Ford will enter training camp next season as the starting quarterback for the Edmonton Elks, but stressed that everything's a competition and called Taylor Cornelius and Jarrett Daggy two good quarterbacks. Does that make sense? No. This is a guy who has been sensational this year. And at the end of the day, let's call a spade a spade. Trey Ford saved Chris Jones' job. Chris Jones would not have a job right now if it wasn't for the emergence of Trey Ford. So I'm fond of them saying that everything's a competition, but we all know who's going to be the week one starter next year. And also calling Taylor Cornelius a good quarterback with all due respect to Mr. Cornelius. Give me a break, man. Give me a break. Nathan Rourke has been moved back to the practice roster with the Jacksonville Jaguars after being promoted to the active roster last week while franchise QB Trevor Lawrence dealt with a knee injury. Were you surprised to see him move back down? 
was disappointed that they didn't keep him around on the 53 for a couple of weeks, but I was not surprised to see him move down. They signed him to a full active roster contract in order to move him up because they wanted to take advantage of that third quarterback emergency rule in the NFL, which you cannot use a practice roster elevation player in that capacity. Now they wave him, send him back to the PR. If they call him up in the future, it won't be in that same capacity. It'll be as an elevation and not as a full signee. Nick Dembski reached the 1,000-yard receiving milestone this past week. Can you believe it's the first time he's done that in his career? I can, but only because he's traditionally missed like three to five games each year due to injury. And Nick Dembski stayed healthy this year. I think he missed one for the birth of a child, but it was not injury-related. So I was not surprised to see him get 1,000. But I'm also happy for him to see him get 1,000. He's been around the league since 2015. He's sneaky young considering how long he's been around. But, you know, he was also potentially running out of opportunities to make this happen. You you think that as a guy gets older, the injuries are going to become worse, not better. So congratulations to Nick Dembski. Well earned. Last one, the Alberta Golden Bears finally overtook the Saskatchewan Huskies in the national rankings after beating the Manitoba Bisons this past weekend, while Saskatchewan lost to the Calgary Dinos. Did the voters finally get it right? They did in this capacity. Alberta should have been ahead of Saskatchewan all year, but they have Saskatchewan still ahead of UBC. And I know the Huskies won the head-to-head, but they have one more loss than UBC. And UBC, if they beat Alberta this week, could claim first place in the Canada West. It does not make sense that they're the 10th-ranked team at the bottom of the U Sports rankings. We thank you, as always, for listening to the Three Donation podcast. Don't forget, this weekend, the CFL games don't mean much, but the OUA playoffs are getting underway. That could be exciting. Also, the last week of action in Canada West has lots of for grabs. Not as much up for grabs in the RSEQ and the AUS, but it's still going to be a good weekend of Canadian football. Until next week, we will see you next time.